listening guide is to help uh, you and me to stay focused on God's Word, and so I hope that you'll use that. There are places there for you to uh, fill in a word or several words, and that'll come up on the screen. And what we know about listening guides is that uh, people who actually use them retain about 75% of what they see, hear, and write. And people who don't uh, usually retain less than 50%. So um, I hope that you'll use them and that you'll find them valuable for your own study of God's Word. Uh, I know that some people take them home and do further study, and uh, they're certainly useful for that as well. We have been, for the first three Sundays this year, we have been focusing on our relationship with God. And the first Sunday of the new year, together we talked about how easy it is to get distracted our relationship with God and how many other things, how many other voices are competing for our attention. And we talked about giving full attention to the Lord in the new year. In Joshua chapter 1, we talked about how important it was for the Word of God to be part of our daily lives, feeding on the Scriptures, nourishing our spiritual lives on the truths of Scripture. We made commitments that day about reading the scripture in the new year and letting God's word become more significant in our lives. And then last week, uh, the second Sunday of the new year, we talked about keeping our eyes on the Lord, how important that is in the midst of a culture that is disintegrating right before our eyes. It is diving headlong into darkness. And it celebrates the things that are an abomination to God. And sadly, the church has little or nothing to say about it. Sadly, the church lacks power. Now, we have so very little interest in church. Last week we talked about the fact that the reason people are not interested in going to church is because there's nothing but religion there for them. And who needs dead, empty, lifeless religion? Nobody needs that. And so the reason people don't go to church, the reason they're not drawn to church, is because the presence and power of God are absent in his church. So if that is the case, what can we do about it? The message today is about revival for God's people. And I confess to you, I need revival. I confess to you that as much as I seek the Lord, as much as I pray and read the scriptures and study, as much as I want to be about the will of God, 
I need revival. Revival is not about lost people. Listen carefully. Revival is not about lost people. Lost people need new life. God's people need revival. Revival assumes that you already have life, but it needs to be revived. Lost people are dead. They're separated from God. They don't have any relationship with God. And so they don't need revival. They need to get saved. They need to be born again. They need a relationship with God. But those of us who have a relationship with God, who have let it slip, who have allowed it to slide into a lesser priority, who have put our relationship with God on the back burner. Oh, yes, we think about Him. Yes, we go to church. Yes, we read our Bibles. But God is not first. He's kind of an afterthought. Well, maybe I should think about God. Maybe I should ask Him about this. And so revival is about God's people. I'd ask you to turn with me to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 7 and just hold your Bibles open there because we're going to look at this passage about revival for God's people. The classic passage is Second Chronicles chapter 7. And the whole passage is built around the crowning achievement of Solomon's life, which was the building of the temple. And chapter 6, in fact, of the, of the life of Solomon, a, a full nine chapters are devoted to this one achievement, the building of the temple. And the first six chapters of Second, uh, Second Chronicles uh, chronicle the events leading up to this classic passage on revival. And so in chapter 6, after the completion of the temple, Solomon prays. And he talks to God about his people. He talks to God about the need that all of us have to be in a right relationship with him. And then after Solomon's prayer, chapter 7 opens up with God visiting Solomon by night. All right, so picking up second set, uh, second. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. God visits Solomon. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You want to know why people aren't in church? There's no glory. 
and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Couldn't even stand up. The presence of God was so thick. You ever been in a service like that? Make you want to go back to church. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord. That is the appropriate response to the presence and power of God. It is not to dance around with a silly grin on your face. It is not to break out in laughter. It is to fall on your face in worship expressing utter dependence upon our God. Friend, we have forgotten the fact that he holds your next breath in his hand. We've forgotten it. So they worship the Lord, saying, For God, he is good. His mercy endures forever. And then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. You know what happens when the presence of God gets a hold of a group of people? They all want to make sacrifices. When the presence and power of God are absent in the church, nobody wants to sacrifice. Everybody wants it their way. They want to do what they want to do when it's convenient for them. But when the presence and power of God are in his church, everybody wants to sacrifice. Why? Because they want to worship the God who is their God. If he's your God, he will call for sacrifice. And you will gladly give it. So, King Solomon offered a sacrifice. 22,000 bulls. And 120,000 sheep. If you just do a little bit of calculation, that's between twenty and 30,000 gallons of blood that were poured out the back of the temple and ran down into the Kidron Valley. I wonder if there's a message there. Without the shedding of blood, There is no remission of sin. The Lamb of God shed His blood so you and I could be forgiven. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God and the priests attended to their services and the Levites also with instruments of music and which the king, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever. His covenant love, his, his love abides forever. His love endures forever. His grace endures forever. His presence endures forever. He is a faithful God. Yes, he is. So the priests sounded the trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in the front of the house of the Lord. He offered burnt offerings and the fat of peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. You see, people get right with God. They bring offerings. And there's so much. There's so much. There's so much abundance. 
that time Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. On the eighth day they held a sacred assembly, where they observed the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. And on the twenty-third day of the seventh month he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that God had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. When you're in a right relationship with God, he will overwhelm you with his goodness. The reason so many people's lives are bitter, the reason they're so shallow, the reason they're so eaten up with misery, is because there's no right relationship with God. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. And he said to him, I have heard your prayer. Wow. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so is the context of that classic passage on revival. As chapter 7 opens, there are five things that happen. I'll note them for you quickly. In chapter 7, verse 1, the power of God is displayed. The fire came down from heaven. In chapter 7, verse 1, the pleasure of God is seen. He accepted the offering. The presence of God is seen in His glory filling the temple, chapter 7, verse 2. The people of God responded in worship, chapter 7, verse 3. And the possession of God was seen by all, chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord's house. Following the dedication of the temple, the Lord visits Solomon by night, and He gives him a message for God's people. These verses in Second Chronicles are the focus of the message, and they lend themselves to three basic questions about the nature of revival. The questions are, who needs revival? Secondly, when does revival occur? And thirdly, what are the results of revival? First question, who needs revival? Well, it's clear that the Lord's people need revival. The Lord's people are the objects of his ownership. The plea for revival has no relevance to anybody who is lost. Lost people don't need to be revived, they need to be saved. So that plea for revival is for us, and we are the Lord's people. Listen, we are the Lord's people. One more time, we are the Lord's people. 
we belong to him. We are called by his name. You are a child of God. You belong to the Lord. And there are certain things in your life which you cannot do because you belong to the Lord. I am his property. I am not my own. I belong to him. If you were to open up my heart today, you would see stamped on my heart, property of Almighty God. I belong to him. You belong to him. You put your name on things that are precious to you. If you have a wife, you put your name on her. Hello. You have something that's precious to you, you put your name on it. It's a symbol of ownership. This belongs to me. And the Lord has put his name on you. Amen. Who needs revival? The Lord's people. Not the world. The world doesn't need revival. The world needs Christ. But God's people need revival. If my people. Did you see that? If my people. It is a designation that communicates both ownership and relationship. Just as the Moabites were the people of Chemosh and the Ammonites were the people of Milcom, the Israelites were the people of God. The Lord claimed Israel as his own special treasure. And listen, God has claimed you as his own precious treasure. You belong to him. If my people who are called by my name, Literally, the phrase reads, On whom my name is read. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it's a passage that talks about the Lord's ownership. Listen to verses 9 and 10. Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 and 10. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself. Just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the peoples of the earth shall see, listen, that you are called by the name of the Lord. They should be afraid of you. Do you think that anybody in this world is afraid of the church? How can they be afraid of the church when they don't fear God? The people of God were the objects of his ownership. In the Old Testament, you would recognize the owner of a jar or an axe by the name that was inscribed upon it. So Israel could be recognized by the name inscribed upon her. She was the Lord's people. We are the Lord's people. 
So the Lord's people are the objects of his ownership, but they're also the object of his discipline. There are three things mentioned in the text that are disciplinary in their application. They are common themes in the book of Deuteronomy. They're all three found in Solomon's prayer. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Hmm. You mean God is the one that controls the rain? Have you read the story of the flood? If I command the locust to devour the land, do you mean God controls the insects? If I send pestilence among my people, you mean God controls disease? All three things are disciplinary in their action, and they intend a good outcome. The Lord, when he disciplines his people, is not after destruction. That's the enemy. He's out to destroy you. God is always interested in restoring And so when God's people move away from Him and move away from His will and move away from His Word, when they move away from the presence of the Lord, He disciplines them to bring them back. It's always with the attitude of restoring. God wants a right relationship with His people. If you've ever been to the woodshed, and the Lord's taken you there, you know that His intention is loving. It hurts. It's painful. But the outcome is good. These are the works of God against His own people. These are actions of the Lord, but they're not arbitrary actions. They are the consequences of sin. You see, when God's people sin and they stop putting Him first, when they go after other idols, other idols, that's anything that you put before the Lord is an idol. When they go after other things, then God is obligated by who He is to discipline his people in order to bring them back. The same way you would discipline your children. Not with the idea of destroying, but with the idea of restoring. There are times when the Lord deals with his people in discipline. Just because a person claims to have a relationship with God doesn't mean that they're immune from discipline. Quite the contrary. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He will discipline us. The Lord's not under any obligation to bless disobedience. Awfully quiet in here. Our health and wealth gospel has duped us into thinking that Jesus automatically gives to everyone a life of comfort, convenience, and ease. 
The privilege of salvation carries with it the privilege of knowing and doing the will of God. Not of living life according to what you want. The disciplinary actions of the Lord have a positive objective in mind. They're intended to bring us to our senses, to remind us of the divine favor of God, to remind us that God's blessing should not be taken for granted, and to cause us to seek the Lord. The church today is in a state of crisis, and I speak of the church as a whole. The church across America. We're in a state of crisis, friends. 10,000 churches this year will close, evangelical churches will close their doors due to lack of attendance and lack of participation and lack of sacrifice and lack of prayer and lack of evangelism. All because God's people are not right with God. There's a lack of moral purity, a lack of seriousness about the things of God, a lack of integrity, a lack of genuine heartfelt commitment to Christ, a lack of sacrifice for the kingdom of God, a lack of obedience, a lack of the fear of the Lord. And the lack is not in the world. The lack is in the church. This is far more serious than any physical ills you and I might go through. Friends, listen. The sickness of the soul is much more serious than the sickness of the body. Sometimes God will use sickness in the body to make us right with Him. And friend, if sickness brings you into a right relationship with God, then praise God for the sickness. Because you see, your relationship with God affects eternity. Your physical body only affects this life. Everybody with me? So God works in our lives. He wants to bring us into this right relationship. He wants us to fully devote our lives to Him because He knows that's the only way His blessings can flow. When disaster strikes, we must be open to the message which God may be trying to communicate. I propose to you, our country is on a collision course with disaster. And the church has nothing to say about it. Because we, the church, are not in a right relationship with God. Do you not think that if God's people got serious with God and prayed and sought His face, the whole country could be turned around? Do you not think that's possible? Then if it's possible, why is it not happening? Why is it not happening? Because we're not serious. Oh yes, I know, I agree. Just don't ask me to come to prayer meeting. Oh, I know, I know, I agree. I believe that the only hope is for the church to experience revival. I know that, I, I agree, but don't ask me to give sacrificially. I know that, I know that, but don't ask me to, con to be consistent in my Bible studies. I, I have other things to do. 
first question, who needs revival? God's people need revival. He who fakes, fails to take God seriously risks making God his enemy. Second question, when does revival occur? If those who claim to be God's people can experience disciplinary actions, how can that be halted and spiritual renewal become a reality? Well, first of all, in the text, we're told that revival will occur only when the Lord's people humble themselves. The word for humble is used throughout the book of Chronicles. It refers to being subject to one of a higher power. Derives its meaning from the court of a king. And when the king was on his throne... People who entered the presence of the king did not dare even look up at the king. They humbled themselves in the presence of one who holds their destiny in his hands. We've gotten so flippant about God and about church and we'll go and do things that were once thought to be unimaginable and they're done by people who claim to belong to the Lord would you like a present day example Anybody here ever heard of Powerball? The only reason Powerball is at $1.3 billion is because of the greed in the hearts of people. And guess who pays the highest price? The poor. The average income of the person playing the lottery is $18,000 a year. And the lottery is built on the backs of the poor. And if you're a Christian and you're playing the lottery, you are defying God and His Word. And you can excuse it all you want to and call it a game. Friend, you're not right with God. Your heart is going after riches, not after the Lord. Have you consulted God about spending that dollar? Hello! It is an evidence of the greed of our culture. And the only people getting rich are the lottery players. Oh, the lottery gets a lot of money, and the poor lose a lot of money. They spend money they don't have. Why? Because they're looking to the lottery to supply their needs, not to Almighty God. It's the betrayal of a wrong relationship with God. That's a present-day example. There are so many... I want you to know I love you, even though I preach hard, I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. Correct? Okay. I love you too, Phyllis. 
Revival does not come to the proud and self-sufficient. Revival comes to those who sense their need for mercy. Never has the evangelical church in America been so rich in resources, so slick in technology, so influential in its promotions, but rarely, if ever, have we ever been so arrogant, so brazen about self-indulgence and carelessness about sin. You think this is easy to preach. You're wrong. Compromising with sin is rarely a sign of spiritual maturity. Revival will occur when we humbly admit that we are doomed apart from the wonderful grace of God. When grace grips your heart, you'll not say, Oh good, God's forgiven me, I can go sin all I want. When grace grips your heart, you'll say, Oh God, you've been so good to me. I want to get away from sin. As far as I can, I want to get closer to you, Lord. Because you're good and you're gracious and you're kind and you're forgiving and you're loving and you're merciful and I love you. Secondly, revival occur only when the Lord's people begin to pray. This is not a casual conversation with God. It is not dialoguing with the Lord. It's not a simple chat with the Almighty. The word pray regularly comes as a term which means to plead for mercy. The word picture is illustrated in Daniel. For Daniel is fasting and praying in sackcloth and ashes. The attitude here recognizes that God is not obligated to hear anybody's prayers. It is only by grace that any of us get an audience with the king. What a contrast to the modern Christian church that pumps out a self-esteem gospel of man-centered Christianity whose philosophy goes something like this. There must be something wonderful about me for God to love me. What a perversion of the truth. There must be something wonderful about God for Him to love you. Do you see how man-centered we've become? We think it's all about us. It's all about Him. When you think it's all about you, then all your little preferences become big. But when it's about God, the only thing you care about is Him being glorified. Regardless of what's going on in your life, you just want God to be glorified. I talked with a lady one day. She was dying of cancer. She called me on the phone. She said, listen, I have a concern. I said, what is it? She said, I don't want to in any way bring dishonor to the Lord in the way that I die. I just want Him to be glorified in my death. Now friend, that's a heart that is captured by the grace of God. Because all you'll care about is bringing glory and honor to the God who saved you. 
It's all you care about. Whether you live or die doesn't matter. Whether God gets glory is what matters. Amen. Let me tell you something. Muslims are more committed to their religion than we are to ours. They're ready to die. How about you? You ready to die for Christ? The only thing that matters is the glory of God. So when will revival occur? When we begin to pray. We humble ourselves. We pray. We seek the Lord. We ask God to work in our lives, to work in the hearts of our family. We've forgotten the words of the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Listen to this. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We've forgotten these words. We've forgotten who it was that died for us. We've forgotten the shed blood. We've forgotten the forgiveness of sins. We've forgotten the purity of our lives. We've forgotten the God who controls eternity. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We've forgotten that old hymn. When will revival occur? When we humble ourselves and pray and seek the face of God. Revival will occur when the Lord's people seek His face. Seeking the face of the King referred to gaining an audience with Him. For gaining his favor. Why do we need to seek God's face? 26 times the writers of the scriptures speak of the Lord hiding his face. Other times we read of God turning his face away. When God hides his face, he refuses to hear our prayers. In the Old Testament, it resulted in disaster and captivity when God turned his face away. Isaiah 59 says, God's ear is not deaf that he cannot hear, nor is his hand shortened that he cannot save, but your sins have separated you from your God, and he will not hear you. So we must seek the face of the Lord. Pleading with Him for mercy. Recognizing our own corruption. God is not obligated to be forever smiling on His people. 
We want a smiling God. Indeed, we've created for ourselves a smiling God. When we who have experienced God's marvelous grace cease to be obedient and cease to do the will of God and cease to be concerned about personal purity and holiness, then we should not be surprised by prayers that go unanswered and discipline that is directed at us from above. So we must seek His face. We must stop allowing things into our lives that we know are dishonoring to God. Revival will occur only when the Lord's people turn from their sinful ways. In order to do this, we'll have to reintroduce the definition of sin. In our day, tolerance and openness are the buzzwords. We've intentionally dispensed with words like sin, evil, and wickedness because they imply some kind of value judgment. I've restricted some TV programs in my house. Yes, I've done it because the actions of the people are wicked and the people portraying them are wicked. We will not see revival in in our day until we call sin by its proper name, sin. We need to stop using terms like shortcomings, failures, flaws, slips, or mistakes. No, it's sin. The fact is, we are not okay. The text calls for us to repudiate sin, not redefine it. And all of us as human beings would kind of like to rationalize away our rebellion against God. We'd like to excuse it by blaming it on somebody or some organization or something that happened when the real problem is not out there, it's right in here. It's called a sinful heart in rebellion against God. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking to me. You think I don't struggle? Anybody who's known me for any time knows that I struggle. And I struggle with the same kinds of things that you do. And I need God's mercy just as much as you do. If not more. You remember the two people that Jesus used in prayer? There was a publican. We could call him a politician. And there was a sinner. And the publican said, Oh, I thank God that I'm not like all these other people. And the sinner said, Oh, God. Be merciful to me. But sinner. Which do you think is in a right relationship with God? When we call sin, sin, and we turn away from it, we turn toward the Lord. Fact is, repentance involves an acknowledgement of our sin and an abandonment of the evil ways associated with it. 
Who needs revival? God's people. When will revival occur? When we humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. And finally, what are the results of revival? They are sweet. There are three beautiful statements, descriptions of true revival. The Lord will hear. When God's people pray humbly with repentance and seek His face, He will hear. Imagine the prayers that you've been praying for so long, desperately seeking God and asking Him for help, but they go unanswered because you're not in a right relationship with Him. And all of a sudden, because you're willing to repent and humble yourself and say, God, it's me that need mercy. I need mercy. And you get right with Him and all of a sudden He says, okay, now I'll go to work on your prayers. I wonder if the problem with our children's and grandchildren's hearts is not really a problem with our hearts. I wonder if the reason my children's hearts are still away from the Lord is because of my own pride and self. You hear me? Do you hear what you're saying here? Listen. God wants to answer prayer. But He cannot because His people have not gotten in a right relationship with Him. He promises, if you will pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, I will hear. Here's the second beautiful statement. The Lord will forgive. The Hebrew word gives us the idea of sin being lifted off of us and carried away. Can you imagine? You've been beat down and burdened down by sin. The behavior has been rebellious. All these attitudes that you're carrying along and it's you've got this load upon you and you can't live life and you can't enjoy life and you can't be what God wants you to be because you're loaded down with this burden of sin. And He comes along graciously because you've humbled yourself. He comes along graciously, puts His hand under that burden, lifts it off of you and carries it away. <laughs> There's nothing like that. I will forgive their sin. He's made the provision through the death of His own Son. He sent Him to the cross to shed His blood as payment for our rebellion and our sin and our wrong and our wickedness and our evil. He paid for it all at the cross. God made it possible. But you can't just come up and grab it. You must humble yourself and pray and seek the face of God and turn from your wicked ways, then forgiveness will flow like a river. Finally, the Lord says He'll heal the land. You know what this is? This is quite amazing, actually. 
God says, I will remove the effects of the sin. When God heals, He heals completely. Who in here would say that our land does not desperately need healing? And the church holds the key. The reason we continue to descend in darkness in our culture is because the church refuses to get right with God. A church in revival will affect the moral climate of a community. When the culture is dominant, the moral climate of the church is affected. When the church is dominant, the moral climate of the culture is affected. You see, where do you think we really are? You know, we sit in the church and we decry all the moral evil out here. But whose fault is it? It's not their fault. They're lost. Lost people act like lost people. The fault lies at the doors of the church. I am worn out. <laughs> Revival. Let it begin with me. Can you say amen? Would you stand with me, please? <laughs>